Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Dr. Brent Walker. Dr. Walker is currently the Associate Athletic Director of Championship Performance at Columbia University. He spent several years working with all sports, including baseball at Columbia. He has several professional baseball clients whose performance on the field has greatly benefited from working with Brent. In this episode, we talk a lot about how should parents be coaching their kids and just helping their kids in general when they're watching practice or at a game. We get into some different techniques that players can use and coaches can help their players with when dealing with the mental side of the game and and just um, athletic performance in general. I've, I really have enjoyed working with uh, Dr. Walker um, this past month myself personally, and it, it's really benefited me and, and my own players. So I wanted to have him on the podcast because I, I felt that this could really help a lot of people out there get benefit, um, whether you're a parent and it's you're just you want to help out your kid or you're a coach and want to help out your players. So hope hope you enjoy this one um, with Dr. Brent Walker. All right, we're now live uh, with Dr. Brent Walker. Uh, Brent, thanks for coming on today. Oh, happy to do so. Um, so I, you're at Columbia University right now. Um, I, I know you've told me in the past you've you know you've been at so, some other places too. Can you give everyone just a, a brief background on on your own journey and your career? Yeah. So early in my career, I started out. I was a, a faculty member at some small schools. And uh, while I was a faculty member, I was additionally doing some consulting. I worked with the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, early in my career, I worked with uh, several professional baseball players, a couple in professional basketball, football, and golf. Um, so I just had an independent consulting business. And then I uh, ultimately came to Columbia to become the director of championship performance in 2012. And then I think I remember you saying you you worked with the Illinois baseball team at one time too, or was it? Yes, I, I have a relationship with the Illinois baseball team dating back to 1997. Uh, Dan Harlan's coach there was uh, recently named the uh, Big Ten coach of the decade for the last decade. He does a phenomenal job. So I've worked with Dan all the way back to his assistant days. And uh, I started working with, uh, when I started working with the team, Itch Jones was the head coach at Illinois. So I've worked with them for for years. So your, your title at Columbia is the Associate Athletic Director of Championship Performance. So you work with all the sports. Is, is working with baseball players uh, more challenging just in, this, in the sense of being able to see like results translate on the field? You know, the kind of the way I break down athletes is um, like baseball, softball, maybe even golf. Um, I think the challenge in sports like that is you have so much dead time so that your mind can just go to different places. Whereas like when you're playing a game like basketball, soccer, it's a lot of reaction time. Um, so there's a lot more flow. Whereas obviously baseball, I mean, it may be like in terms of real time, it may be 25 minutes before a bat. So you have 25 minutes to think about your last at bat. And so I think one of the challenges with a sport like baseball is how do we manage that time? How do we get ready for the um, small amounts we're pay, playing? I think I heard a stat one time where unless you're a pitcher or a catcher, 
you only spend 3% of your time actually playing the game of baseball when you play baseball. <laughs> so what are you going to fill the rest of the time with? There, there lies your challenge. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's tough. I mean, what, what are some of the, like you, you know, you've had a lot of experience working with baseball players, which is, you know, this is a baseball podcast. So I thought it was really fitting. I mean, are there common themes that you constantly uh, deal with when, when working with baseball players? Yeah, I, I think the old adage, you know, baseball is a game of failure from the hitting side. Um, it's interesting, though, if we, if we took that concept, I think if you ask pitchers versus hitters, pitchers wouldn't say, oh, yeah, but baseball is great because I'm successful all the time. So it, it's a little bit of a, <laughs> a myth with that notion. But I think the, the biggest thing from a hitting standpoint is you have a well, it used to be you had a batting average tied to your name. I don't know the batting average is the thing we always look at nowadays, but still it is stats driven. It's results driven. So, and the, some of the issues I see, especially from the hitting side is um, what do I do if I'm not getting the results and those results can be the actual numbers. And it, but I think it's always been there, but now the, the title of it's changed, but like uh, hard hit or uh, hard hit percentage, those types of things where you, we still, even as we've been able to quantify things more, we have even more results to look at. And so uh, when we're not getting those results, what do we do? And I think for both hitters and pitchers, another big challenge is it's pretty easy when we're struggling to think that we need to change things mechanically. And whenever we start tinkering with the mechanics of things, that takes us out of that um, kind of zone that we get into when we're going well. So I think so. those are some of the biggest challenges I see. And I, I mean, kind of really just goes back to the whole like internal versus external, right? Debate, right? Mm -hmm. And then like yeah. also, I like, just like getting into flow. I know like that's something like you hear a lot. Like, like so when you're when you're uh, you know working with players, I mean, is it more in a team setting or is it individual? Because I'm sure some of it maybe overlaps, but then I'm sure there's some background information that would help working with players individually too. Yeah, definitely, and I think. I think in terms of taking a, the big picture of the team, what are the basic skills we can teach, whether it's like breathing or something to do with routines. But then from that, every player goes through a different challenge they experience. So for instance, you can teach everyone how to breathe, but for, for one player, it may be that the way I, or my relationship with results messes up my breathing or my ability to hit. For a second player, it may be another challenge. And so looking down at the individual, it is what specifically do I need to do to basically, whether it's standing on the mound or standing on the box and just have a clear head and, and see what's in front of me, the pitch. And then how, how often would you say that, um, you know, sometimes the players fears, which everyone has fears, especially in, in baseball, it, it but like if I guess maybe is there a point of the way that someone grew up or their background have something to do with what how it affects them on the field? Yeah, definitely. I think it, in people who grew up in environments where, where, for instance, their batting average was emphasized, like, for instance, if mom or dad after every single game goes, hey, why are we 0 for 4 today? You're going to be tied to those results versus – uh, someone who just focused on the process and said, hey, you look like you were having fun out there and you look like you were just letting it fly today. Those are two very different pieces of feedback. And therefore, um, kind of one way to look at it is the 
the voice of your parents or your, you know, your guardians, whoever that was, that voice starts to get internalized as you become a teenager. So if that voice is very negative, you may be negative with yourself. Or if you have someone who is, um, they just kind of said, hey, go out and play and have fun. That's going to lead to a very different internal dialogue that's taking place for somebody. And I remember you tell me before, which I thought was very interesting uh, about how like unconsciously for, for some kids early on, if their parents are, are too involved or put too much pressure on them, that they, they won't necessarily fake injuries, but it, it, their, their mind kind of wants a way out. And so it's like those kids who are always injured or, you know, suddenly get the yips or, you know, just because they, their mind feels that they have, it has no way out. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So kind of the way that works is I start playing and, and here's something that parents may see. And it, it, it seems puzzling at first, but like you have a, an 11 year old who's the best player on the team. And then next year rolls around and 12 year old, and all of a sudden they have no desire to even try out. And at first it's head scratching. It's like, you're so good. Why wouldn't you want to try out? But when we kind of hit that age of 12, we start to realize that, hey, if I've been good in the past, people expect that same thing out of me. And now once I have expectations, the game becomes a little bit harder because if I fail, we also have that notion, if I give 100% and I fail, what's that mean? It means I'm not good enough. And so we want to avoid that. So how do we avoid that? And I think with parents as well, if, if we have a parent who's very involved and for instance, uh, I make the all-star team and then all of a sudden the parents like, that was great. You made the all-star team. I think you could be the best player on the team. And as the, the bar continues to rise, that's where the unconscious piece or subconscious piece eventually comes in, in terms of, well, at some point I'm not going to be able to reach that standard that keeps going up and up and up. And that's where those mental blocks come in is that I need a way out of this. And, it, we don't often just immediately go, well, I'll just quit because there are expectations on it. It's not that simple. And so that's where sometimes the metal blocks come in and it's, it gives us a way out because if I have the yips or I have another reason why I can't perform, that takes some of the pressure off and that lowers the bar for us. Mm, that totally makes sense. I'm sure that's, that's going to hit home with a lot of people out there who are listening or watching this. Uh, what what should parents do and instead of I, I mean I guess I understand the why they would be like hey like you did four for four today like let's see if you can match again tomorrow or you hit 80 miles an hour exit velocity let's see if you can get up to 90 next time like what like what should their approach be to that so this doesn't happen because I know it I know it's happened yeah and I think from a parent perspective number one and well I, I think parents need to understand development so for instance so many times I hear, I have parents reach out to me and they have a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old and they want me to work with a nine or 10-year-old. And, and my response is a nine or a 10-year-old is not ready to work with me. They don't know what they want. They're just playing to play. And for, from a parent, why development becomes important is if, if your son is a, a superstar at age 10, it doesn't mean he's going to be a superstar at 15 because until you grow, you don't know what someone's going to be until they reach maturation and, and then we see what they are physically. And, and uh, I think and from a development standpoint, something to be aware of is, and this is the trap that we fall in in America for sure, is that uh, a nine, 10 year old shows promise and then coaches and everyone else invests in them because they have potential. 
But the reality is, if you take a nine or 10 year old, who's gonna be the best? The, the one that's the most mature are physically the best. And, and if you look through some of the research, that's where you get the birth date becomes important. And like, oftentimes I think it was uh, August birth that was a cutoff for Little League Baseball. And so you see the kids who are closest to the, to the deadline, who are the oldest and maybe the most mature physically, of course they dominate. But the other piece of that equation, though, is that early matures tend to have shorter growth periods, so they don't end up the most physically dominant on the back end. So a lot of times we put, in, or we put our resources into those kids that showed the promise early on, and they're not going to be there on the back end. I think the challenge with baseball specifically, too, is nowadays what we do is some kid shows potential, so then we sign them up for club teams, and we we put them into as much baseball as we can. And Dr. Andrews' research clearly shows is that one of the greatest predictors of Tom John surgery is playing year-round or the amount you throw, playing on multiple teams, um, throwing the baseball too much. So one of the things that's happened in baseball specifically with that investment is more is definitely not better. It just increases the likelihood of injury. So you really, if anything, you need to be working with the parents of those 10-year-olds, not those 10-year-olds. Exactly. And that's what that's always my thought process is that parent that's requesting I work with their 10 year old. Realistically, I need to work with them, yeah. not their child at that time. So <laughs> for, for, sure. for, those, for those parents who have those 10 year olds out there, just let them just like let them play. Right. Just let them have fun. Don't worry about putting pressure, <laughs> any of that stuff on them. Right. And if you look at some of the research related to um like let's say, take the NCAA, for example. Um, if you look at sports and with the exclusion really of, I think tennis is an exclusion, maybe golf is another, 80% uh, of NCAA athletes played multiple sports growing up and, and past the age of 12. And so realistically, a variety of experiences is important. Um, early specialization, what we know now is that early specialization other than increasing the chance of injury, it doesn't do, do a whole lot to, to increase the likelihood that you're gonna be successful at a later age. And if we think about even something like playing soccer, that's gonna develop your footwork. So it's gonna make you a better outfielder or a better infielder in terms of having, having better footwork. So at those early ages, the more experiences you can have, the more you're gonna develop for the, the later ages. And I'm sure that it also helps with not burning out down the road too. Cause you see that, I mean, I was talking to um, had the Cubs big league hitting coach on Anthony Iposi. He said burnout is the number one reason why a lot of guys don't stick in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. I'm sure yeah, that it starts it, at that young age. It, and I think psychologically something I see working with a lot with the college population is going back to that notion that most kids played multiple sports when they get to college they're now playing one. And so the disadvantage you have psychologically is if you weren't doing well in your sport, you had another one you could go to. Now that's no longer there. So your failures, it, it, your identity is your sport and it's a single identity, a single sport. Now your failure is a failure. And so I think it becomes even harder. And then the one of the bigger challenges I've seen too, jumping from the college ranks to the professional ranks is, um, I mean, in many cases, you're doubling the length of the season. And, and so I've worked with a lot of a lot of guys where it's like, 
you have to change your mindset because you can't like live and die by every success and failure on a daily basis because it it'll just eat you up over that longer season so you've got to find a way to and and I'll never forget I had one mother thank me of a minor league player she said the work you've done has been so valuable for my son because he can come home after uh, over three or he can call me after an over three and he's okay. Now he, he knows there's life outside of the game because before he, he couldn't, he didn't have that balance. So there definitely is a burnout factor. Do you think the the problem goes higher up though? You know, and even like the NCAA, right? Because now you're getting these kids who are being offered scholarships. This has even happened around here locally where I'm at in Cincinnati at 14 years old and so parents see that we're like whoa like you know my timmy i mean he's 12 was like hey in two years he could be getting a scholarship if he's good enough like let's get him let's get him rolling let's get him throwing you around like you said all that i mean don't you think that's a like that may be like one of the bigger issues that's pushing this a hundred percent and i think i think that's twofold i think there's a narrative that that happens all the time but in reality it's very rare that that young person but anytime they do we all hear about it sometimes it's even on the bottom line on espn and so everyone thinks that's the norm when in reality it's not um but i'll give you an example and it's not a baseball example but i i played baseball at bradley university and i played basketball a year there as well and uh, I'll never forget this conversation. I, I went to school with a guy by the name of Marcus Pollard, and, and we didn't have football at, at Bradley. Um, but I was having a conversation with Marcus, and uh, I said, hey, what are you going to do when you're all done? And he was playing basketball at Bradley. He said, you know, I think I'm going to put on 30 or 40 pounds and try and play in the NFL. And I, I'll, I'll never forget. I go, yeah, and I'm going to be an astronaut. And then like two years later, he, he's, he's on the Indianapolis Colts, played a decade with the Colts, and had a 14-year NFL career. And so here's a guy who didn't play a single down of college football, and he was a, had a 14-year NFL career. And a, a great book for parents to check out is called Range by David Epstein. And it talks about the value of a variety of experiences. We, we all believe in, in the kind of the primary thesis of his book is comparing Tiger Woods to Roger Federer. And the notion is, as parents, we put forth over oh, the tiger phenomenon, you know, make if, if our child shows potential, we're going to make them this prodigy and turn them into this great thing. And, and the reality is the more common path is like Roger Federer played multiple sports as a kid and then eventually just ended up that, oh, yeah, tennis was it and became a phenomenal tennis player. But the more like the, a variety of experiences is valuable to your development. And so and like I go back to, um, if you take an eighth grader, I mean, they haven't even really hit their full maturation. So their velocity pitching or their ability to hit a baseball is going to be dramatically different in four years, three years. So it's hard to say at a young age what someone's going to be or not be in a sport like baseball or other sports as well. Yeah, I often tell uh, some people, you know, my goal if I work with a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old is – I want them to, to still be playing in like five years. Like that's yeah. like, you know, to, to love the game even more in five years than they do now. But that was a great example of Tiger and Roger Federer. And I don't know either one of those guys, but it just seems, and it's pretty obvious to me, like that Federer seems really high, just a happy guy. And mm-hmm. Tiger is, it's tough to tell, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. there's definitely been some, some issues, but it never really seems he's like all that happy. Now, again, maybe that's just, 
you know, when the media is around, but I, I don't know, I've been watching them for many, many years and it just seems like that to me. So that could be another point right there of just what life happiness, the older you get. Well, and I, and I think, you know, Tiger recently played in an event with his son, Charlie, and, and his consistent mantra throughout that was, I just wanted to go out and have fun. And the, the ironic part that people haven't focused on is that Tiger's not taking his dad's philosophy with his own son. Like, hey, I got I to gotta go out and, you know, stand behind him and make noise as he tees off or anything like that. He's like, no, try things, have fun. Just go out and play and have fun, whatever you do. So even this this notion that here's how you develop a prodigy, the prodigy isn't taking that same mantra with his own children. He's kind of looking at what was done and saying, that's hey, yeah. This, yeah, this this wasn't the best approach to doing it. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, I, I think this is, yeah, going to be so valuable for, for so many people out there listening, coaches, parents, and um, even players too. And one of the, the things I wanted to, to talk to you about from a, a player's perspective and, and coaches too, because, you know, every coach on here wants their players to succeed at a high level. And I, have you ever heard of, of the SAT story, like mix up where like someone like this, this guy, have you heard of that story? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess for those listening who haven't heard, I'll just give a brief background. If I'm wrong on anything, please correct me. But mm -hmm. apparently it was this guy grew up. Um, he didn't have good grades. He wasn't doing very well in school. I don't think his home life was that great. Didn't have many friends, wasn't confident. And so, you know, if you looked at the trajectory of his life, it probably wasn't going to be very successful, but he ended up getting, uh, he took the SAT like you have to in high school. His score was, came back and surprisingly was like insanely good. I don't remember the score was, but it was insanely good, which he, he caught him by surprise. And he's like, whoa, like, I guess I, I am kind of smart. Like, I never, this is crazy ended up getting him into a, a good college. He was able to, to go to that college with this new bound of confidence and, you know, just being able to get in because of the test score. I think he transferred, if I remember correctly, to even like an Ivy League or a Wharton, mm -hmm. some school even really good. And then he ended up, you know, after later on, like found his own business and now worth millions and millions of dollars. And it all went back to him getting that test score. Well, it came comes out that year, they sent out the wrong test scores to a bunch of people and he actually got the wrong test score his test score he actually got was really really low like probably what would have been expected but because he he was he perceived that he was so smart because of this test score it gave him the confidence to just take off i love that story and i and I, I wanted to just bring that up to you because how often do you think that would happen or how would something like that um like change someone's career in sports when they, the second they believe that they literally can play with the best. Yeah. Cause I, and I think it's that self-fulfilling prophecy of, and it goes back to that notion of we invest in the kids who show the greatest potential at the early age. And it, when in reality, putting all that extra attention on them may help move them forward where so many kids fall through the cracks and, and it made me think of when you asked me earlier, you know, advice for parents, the advice I would give to parents in relation to this is what's most important is, is your habits and how you think about things. And what's most important for a parent and what's most important for us to internalize is focus on what you can control and do something about that. So as a parent, emphasize effort. It, it, it's more important than the outcome, because if we think about it, if you maximize your effort in everything you do, over time, you're gonna be successful at a lot of things. 
And, but what the system is, is you're, as you've identified, it's more the self-fulfilling prophecy. Someone showed potential and now we're investing in them because of that so-called potential they have. And then we create the expectation that you have to have that potential all the time. And, and if you go to, it's interesting, if you've ever heard of uh, Carol Dweck and, and Dweck does, for instance, um, talking about mindset. And this notion is that if you tell people the same thing, they scored really well on a test. What's interesting, if you look at that research, is if you told people, hey, you did really well, you must really be smart. What starts to happen over time is that people stop giving effort because they're afraid that if I give effort and I don't score well, I'm not smart. But if you simply tell people, hey, you did really well, you must have worked really hard at that. They're willing to continue with that effort because they know that effort is what is what's leading to the ultimately to the outcome. That's what we have to focus on is what can we do to be better? And, and kids that are told they're good or they have ability, there is that fear that, well, I must be good because I have ability. If I don't get those results, then I don't have ability. And therefore, I got to avoid that. And one way to avoid that is to not give effort. Mm, that's good. Really good. Do you think that that it would make sense in a sense to to change the education system so there's no grades? Because that's the people are chasing that. They, they want that A. Yeah, 100%. Because and, and I even look back on my own experiences, that was the difference between undergrad and graduate school is that in undergrad, everything is emphasized. And I always tell our student athletes in the, in the Ivy League, it's a very competitive environment. It's very stress heavy environment. I always tell our student athletes that, look, your GPA is going to stay with you either into your acceptance into graduate school or your first job. After you get your first job, and if you look at the numbers now, it's like, the statistics are crazy. Like the average, the generation now, they not only change jobs multiple times, they change careers like five times. So your GPA will last into your first job. After that, people don't care what you did in college. They want to know what your experience is. So this whole notion that you have to get a number and, and what's lost in the number is what did you do to achieve the number? For instance, if you have a professor who gives everybody A's, why would you put forth effort in there? And are you really learning or getting better in that environment? What's most important is you're establishing the habits that are going to make you successful over time. And if I studied as hard as I could and learned as much as I could, realistically, that's more valuable than any grade attached to it because I did something that made me better over the long haul. And that's really what we should be emphasizing. That's what the school should be emphasizing too. And that's where like Dweck's research has influenced some of the school systems because it is lost in that result or that grade rather than what went into that grade well and it's also goes back to because there's some kids who are just so smart and they, they can get a's i mean especially mm -hmm. in grade school without even trying right. so i mean I, I guess your point is you know we should be these, these kids should be graded just by effort not necessarily mm -hmm. by you know how smart they you know seem to be at that particular time right and, and to that point too the, the advantage of doing that is compare yourself to yourself. I mean, because you, you're really, if we think about it, and, and like as an example, and I think this is one of, whether it's sports or whether it's school, one of the biggest mistakes we make is whether it's grades or winning, for instance, that's not the highest standard there is. Being the best version of yourself is a higher standard. 
And holding ourselves to that, think about what we could accomplish if we made that the goal rather than getting a grade or winning. Like, like as an example, if if I wanted to, if I wanted to win, I just I'm, I'm six foot seven. I'd go play my five foot eight kid in basketball. <laughs> I can win all the time there. Well, not anymore, but I, I could win all the time. I could win a lot of those. But is that me being the best version of myself? Realistically, what I want to be is the best version of myself, not better than someone else. Um, and, and if you look at elite athletes, there it, it's both. It's not about win. It's not just about winning. It's about winning as much as you can, but by being the best version of yourself, reaching your own potential. That's ultimately what we want. So from a baseball perspective, like are there, would you, if you could do it your own way, would you not share metrics with players or statistics with players or would you, are there certain ones you would only share? That's a great question. So when, when I work with hitters or pitchers, for instance, like I'll give you some of the metrics we create, like for hitting, and, and I'll ask hitters, our starting point is, when you're going well, tell me about that process. And so some of the things I'll hear is, I'm relaxed, it's effortless, I just see ball, hit ball, um, I don't have many thoughts. Um, comparing that to when you're struggling, when you're struggling, it's like, I'm thinking about my mechanics, I'm thinking about I'm 0 for 4, I got to get a hit. Um, I have a lot of different things come through my head. And so um, like pulling from that, like some of the important things that come out of that are number one, being relaxed at the plate. Like every hitter tells you when I'm going well, I'm, I'm, I'm relaxed. Same thing with pitchers. So obviously we know that's an important variable. Um, another one is I, I just have a clear head. I, I'm, I'm not thinking about too much. I just get up there and 99% of players will tell you, I, I, I'm not think I think a lot less when I'm going well. So if those are two important factors, what we're going to do over a game, if you have four at-bats, how many times during those four at-bats were you able to clear your head and did you take a deep breath to relax yourself between pitches? And so there's our stat in four at-bats, how many times did I keep myself relaxed and keep my head clear? Mm. And it's not even so much looking at how well you accomplished that, but you made an effort to do that. So for instance, I, I stepped out, I took a deep breath in an attempt to clear my head. If I do that three out of every four at bats, I've actually increased the likelihood of getting hits. So we wanna focus on that goes back to what's within our control and, and it's different for different people, but just looking at each player and say, okay, what specifically do you do when you're going well? And then let's be intentional about that as you go up to the, the plate. So kind of working backwards from that, some of the things I've, I've done with the hitters I've worked with and pitchers is, um, for instance, on the tee, rather than just putting a ball up, hitting it, and a lot of times what we do is if we don't hit it well, we think about, all right, what do I need to adjust mechanically? And the way I think about that is, what's your, the purpose of your tee work is to try it, to tie it to hitting. And so are you then practicing, oh, I need to make a mechanical change every time I miss hit a ball? And what hitters have always told me when I, when I ask them this question, if you think about mechanics, do your mechanics get better or worse? And what they always say is they get worse. And when you're going well, you're not thinking about your mechanics. So why would we want to ingrain that process? So rather than that, I put a ball on a tee, I hit it. And then the, the initial challenge I give hitters is, and same thing with pitchers, after I hit it, how do I clear my mind for the next one? 
So I just go into the next one with a completely clear head. After I release that pitch, how do I clear my head to throw the next pitch? And in my bullpens, in my T work, in my batting practice, that's what I'm trying to establish is just clearing my head between each and every one. And it, I think it's an old analogy going back to like Ken Revisa, who was a, a mental performance person. Um, he, he always used the analogy of um, if you're thinking about the last pitch, the way to look at that is try to throw two baseballs at once or try to throw, you know, flip, try to hit two baseballs at once. And people are like, well, that's impossible. Well, mentally, if you're doing that, that's going to impact the ability to do it physically as well. So if you're still caught up or you're still struggling with the last pitch, you just swung at one in the dirt or you just, you know, choked a change up too much and bounced it. If you're still thinking about that, you're impacting that. And, and another exercise I do with players is too, along those lines, is it's a commitment exercise. If you threw 80 pitches today or you had, you had, you faced 12 pitches as a hitter, what percentage of those were you 100% committed to? And by 100% committed to, you weren't worried about the, the double you just gave up on the last pitch. Or as a hitter, you weren't worried about the time, the, the fastball you got down the middle and you popped up your last at bat. You're just completely focused and present on the current pitch. So uh, uh, we just do a commitment score. How committed to each and every pitch were you that day? And if we can increase that commitment score, we're going to increase our success ultimately. But we're not we're doing that with a intentional process, looking at our commitment. Oh, that was so good. Such a good statement right there. And I'm sure just as a follow, just as a follow-up question, you know, when, I know we've talked about this before, but when you're struggling uh, and when you have hitters who are struggling and failing, like sometimes like they have to know, like, it's okay to struggle. Like it's okay. Like it's part of it too. And sometimes you just have to work through that struggle instead of fighting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think one of the biggest, and this is, especially if people are tied to results, one of the biggest struggles they have is you have to accept it. And, and the way I talk to players as well is I ask them, are you competitive? And, and you know, everyone, yeah, I'm, I'm ultra competitive. And I'm like, well, if we look at what does it mean to be competitive? And someone who's competitive they approach it the same way, regardless of what's happening. They're trying to win the moment, win the battle. And if you're so caught up in your struggle, you're battling yourself. You're not really competing in baseball in the purest sense is it's pitcher versus hitter. It's one versus one. And if you're worried about yourself, it's you versus you, and you've given the advantage to the other. And so the way to look at that is if you really wanna be competitive when you're struggling, you have to accept that that's part of it and accept that right now, the most important, and I always ask players, what's the most important play in baseball and give you that kind of really deep thought. And I'm like, it's simple. It's the current play. <laughs> if you're not, if you're not tuned into that one, you're not, you're doing yourself a disservice and everyone else. And so whether you're struggling or going well, the most important thing is what you're going to do right here, right now and put yourself in the best, develop the best approach, the best mindset to, to win that battle right here, right now. Yeah, it's, it is. And it's, it's so, it's so hard. And I, you know, I know we're, we're talking about it like it, you know, it's, it's a simple process. I'm sure it takes work and I'm sure it, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's something you have to be disciplined, disciplined with and, and consistent with over time. Like how, how long of a period, like, does it take for a player to really transform? I mean, is it, can, for some, is it just right away or is it usually a process? Yeah, I, I think it's a process, but some people get that process earlier than others. And, and I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier from a developmental standpoint, you know, what is someone's, um, I guess, I don't want to say personal narrative, but, you know, what, what's their worldview? How do they see things? Like some people, some people struggle to give up results. I mean, they just, they've always been told results are most important. And so they, they are just so tied to them, they can't let go of them. But other people really get the concept that, and quite honestly, I think a lot of times we've, we've gone about it all wrong. Like we, like I look back at my own playing days, I, I, I was in a very successful youth baseball program. Like when I was 12 years of age, we were 54 and five. And I look back on it and I'm like, that was probably the biggest disservice I ever faced was all that success at an early age because I was so afraid of not getting that success. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't always do the things I needed to do, all the things in, within my control to make me successful. And so, but for other people, once they start to get this concept and say, okay, I do need to look at it differently. I need to accept that I'm not going to be successful all the time. But if, if, and the most important thing I think is to learn to be present, to just realize that right now I have the opportunity to, to do something great right here, right now. I just got to put myself in the right mindset to do that. That's the most important thing I can do. Some people get that concept quicker than others. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know it, it does take take a little bit of time for some, and and one of the, another thing that I thought was was cool that you've told me in the past is just you know the, the thoughts and how because you always talk about you know you, you always think positive you know this and that, but a lot of times you really can't control your thoughts, mm-hmm. and. And I'm sure for players who are out there struggling and coaches who have players who are struggling, it's like, it, it's good. I think it's good to sympathize a little bit and like understand, like they may not be thinking like great things right now, but how, how do we, how do we help them? Even though that, you know, you can't always control your thoughts um, from really any minute of the day at times. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when people are really struggling, when they come, when they come to me and when I, when I have conversations with them, a couple of things happen. Number one is that I'll hear, well, I can't, I can't change my thoughts. And it's almost viewed as this, um, it's the negative piece of yourself that I'm not, I'm, I'm not strong mentally because I can't control my thoughts. But I think another way to look at that is how do we actually view thoughts? I mean, thoughts are just simply that, they're thoughts. But we get fooled a lot of times to think because I think it, it must be true. So for instance, if I think I'm going to fail today, I'm going to fail. Well, no, you just had a thought. And like, as an example, um, if I'm a hitter and I'm on deck and it's a big moment and I think, oh my God, I'll give you a perfect example of this. I was coaching my, my, my middle son this summer and we were playing away at a tournament and uh, he was on deck with the tying runs up and the guy before him was struck out. And he said, you know, I was so angry that I didn't get that opportunity. He said, because when we were getting ready to go up, the guy who eventually struck out, he told me three batters before he goes, I hope I don't get up with two outs and the base is loaded. (laughs) And 
and he go and my my son was like what do you mean he said give me let me let me hit for you he said let me step up there but and quite honestly that thought wasn't problematic because he was three batters away the problem became he went up to bat with that same mindset of oh my gosh i don't want to be in this situation and and in reality if if we could of course correct and say hey it's okay that you think that's it's okay to be nervous Let's just get up there, clear your head, and just go battle when you get in the box. And if you do that, that's the most important thing that matters. It, but just realizing that a thought is just that. It's a thought. It goes away. Like, and if if I were to ask you, what thoughts did you have at 1 p.m. yesterday? Well, I don't even know. I mean, I can't think what thoughts I had three minutes ago, let alone, you know. <laughs> and, and, but because they're thoughts, they're fleeting. And, and when we start to understand that, we there's power in that because then it, it helps you realize that, wait, I can change my thoughts and, and, and I can think about things differently. But sometimes that is a process to think about things differently. But as soon as we start to understand that, that we can change the way we think about things or even look at it through a different light. And, and I'll give you an example of this. It's perspective. Um, if I'm a pitcher and I think, man, I have a major advantage here. He doesn't know what pitch I'm throwing, what velocity I'm throwing at, where I'm throwing it at. That's a major advantage for me. As a hitter, I'm going, all he has is a little baseball and I have a bat. Advantage me. I have a bat. He has a baseball. And he only has nine guys covering like, you know, how many ever square feet of coverage. My, the odds are in my favor. And if you look at successful athletes and elite athletes, they look at each of those circumstances and see it as their advantage. The person who struggles looks at either one of those and thinks they're at the disadvantage. And so that's where kind of just looking at things through a different lens, changing the way we think about it and identifying, all right, what, how can I be successful? That's what great athletes do is they find a reason for them to be successful. And, and that's where their belief system is is I'm going to find a reason why I'm going to be successful. And it's a skill, but it's a skill that can be developed. Going back to your son, your son's teammate said, you know, out loud, you know, I really hope I don't get up with, with, you know, in this situation with two outs. Because he said it out loud, did it make it that much more likely to happen? Because I'm sure you've heard of Trevor Mohead in his book, It Takes What It Takes, but he talks a little about how whatever you say negatively out loud is 10 times more likely to happen. I forget what it was something like to that degree. I mean, is there any truth to that or is that just a little bit anecdotal? I would I would disagree with it in this sense. And I think a great exercise, for instance, is someone who's very anxious is Another way to look at that is if I say it, I get it out of my own head. So rather than it rattling around in my head, if I just verbalize it and view it as getting rid of it, now I can be done with it. And so I've, I've worked with athletes who will literally go through and write all of their negative thoughts down going in and view it as like a purging of the negativity and the negative thoughts, and then they're ready to go. The most important thing is how you view it. And going back to the timing of it, and I think what Trevor would would agree with, I hope, is that ultimately we're, we're and I, I'm not a proponent of be positive all the time, because if you're positive all the time, you're not realistic. I mean, so you got to make adjustments. 
The most important thing is, and this is where negativity becomes problematic is, if, if my line of thinking is negative and it never changes, now I am impacting the process and the likelihood of being, me being successful. But the reality is, I, and it goes back to the concept of thoughts. Thoughts are just thoughts. Where, we become, where they become problematic is the meaning we attach to them. But if we can just say something and realize it. So for instance, going back to that example with my son's teammate, if he would have said, I can't believe I just said that. I mean, why on earth would I go up to bat thinking I don't want to be in this situation? Why not think I'm the best guy to be in this situation? If he just would have had that realization and, and changed the way he looked at that situation, now he's changed the, the potential outcome dramatically by just being aware of what it was he was thinking. But but it goes back to a lot of times we think our thoughts are the truth. And therefore, because we thought it, we thought it was true, we believed it. And therefore, we went into that moment with that as the reality. But that's where it's important to start. And, and when I work with athletes, the way I look at it is the most important initial skill I can help you with is awareness. Because if you don't, if you're not aware of what your thoughts are, you're not aware of your trouble spots or your advantages. So as soon as we can learn that, now we can work with that. And it's different for each person. That, that's where the individual work becomes so fruitful and valuable is it's starting to identify what are, what are my hot buttons? What are my negative tri triggers? What are my positive triggers? How do we work with those? How do we become aware of those and then change them to our advantage to think more effectively about things? You, you mentioned there about having athletes write stuff down. Um, it seems that there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of research on being on writing things down and how that's happening. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on all that? I mean, is that something that regularly people need to be doing? Yeah. So if you look at like Sean Aker, who is from Harvard, um, he does some stuff with gratitude and, and what, what his research has shown is that in some of the, the other research related to that, for instance, with gratitude is, if you go through gratitude activities and write down what you're thankful for and, and look for those types of things over a, a period of time, then your mind starts to seek out those positive things or those things that you're thankful for. And it starts to change the way you see the world and think about things. So writing those down can be effective uh, and you can do it different ways. Like the example I gave earlier, writing down the, the, the worries, the, ang the anxieties, writing those down and viewing that as a process of letting it leave your head and it's no longer a part of it. Um, and and I, I had a, anxious, a very anxious client in the past who that was his process. He would write it all down. And, and he said that was after I wrote it all down, it was no longer in me. And so I just felt like I got rid of it. And that was my advantage for, I, I think one, one thing we often miss when we're going well, like I said, when we're going well, it feels like we're thinking a lot less. I don't know that we're necessarily thinking a lot less. There is more clarity, but I think there is less analytical activity going on there, but an advantage in, in one we often miss when we're going well, if we just take notes on what's happening, when we struggle, we've lost that. And so to go back and look over that and go, oh, wait a minute. Right now, I'm thinking about my mechanics and how I have no chance. But during that period where, you know, four games in a row, I had three hits each one, I was, here was my approach. And so I, it, that can be valuable insight later on 
to have that information of when we're for both our struggles and our successes. That's awesome. Yeah. Brent, this has been a, a real pleasure and I can't wait to honestly release this because I think it's going to help out so many people um, in just different walks of, of the game, really, really life, you know, parents, coaches, players, um, you know, I, I've been able to work with you uh, personally, you know, um, you know, every week now. And I, you know, I selfishly was like, I don't know if I really want to have him on the show because that I means I lose my competitive advantage. But, um, but I, 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 you know, I really believe that, you know, you can help a lot of people. And so, you know, that's, that's why I did want you to have on, want you to come on the show. Um, for those who, who might be interested in working with you, whether it be a coach, a parent, or a player, I'd, I'd recommend as many people as possible, honestly, you're listening to this. Um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Appreciate that. My, you can either reach me via cell phone, which is 646-581-8007, or uh, email brent.walker at columbia.edu. Okay. Either one will work. Sounds good. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Uh, been a lot of fun here. And, uh, you know, I just, I love this part of the game. I just think it's so crucial and important. Um, you know, everyone, we've, we've been saying it forever, you know, base, baseball is 90% mental. So it's kind of like, why don't we spend a little bit more time you know, on the mental side? Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.